When life is difficult, Samaritans are here. Day or night, 365 days a year. You can call them for free on 116 123. Email them at joe at or visit Whatever you're facing, the Samaritans are here to listen. Welcome to the Beer Podcast. My name is Nick Mins. Uh, on today's podcast, I'm very lucky to be joined uh, by Glenn Kearney. He's uh, a working recovery coach for Working for Health, um, a brilliant uh, CIC, which is uh, in the local Hull area, which I've been lucky enough to work with and get to know as well. So, Glenn, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today to share your uh, your experiences. No problem, Nick. Thank you for having me. It was uh, a pleasure to be on with you this afternoon. And uh, when you asked me to do it, it was more than more than an honour to come down and have a have a conversation, a chat about ongoing recovery from dark to light, really. And there was there was a journey before the darkness as well. So it's nice to engage in, in any part of that. None of that holds any any control of me anymore. And, and I try and spread a message of change and recovery through the way I live my life. So yeah, happy to be down with you. And it's always good to touch base with you via Zoom or in person. So yeah, I won't be making the cups of tea this afternoon, but I'm sure I'll make one next time I see you. <laughs> Brilliant, love that. Um, so yeah, I mean, if if you want to obviously take us back to your, if you like, your earliest memory of starting with uh, mental health and then just a little bit about your journey through that as well. Yeah, it's, it's strange. I, I speak about my childhood and it wasn't a position if I was running away from anything. You know, I had a really good childhood, brought up on a council estate in Hull. The Fountain Road Estate, which I've just recently bought the family home, which holds many good memories for me. So journeys through life, individuals you come across, you hear some horror stories of childhood, um, mental, emotional, sexual abuse, things like that. And that wasn't the case for me. I was brought up with around a lot of love. We didn't have a lot of money, but we, we lived a really good life. I had a, a dad who was a supporting father. He worked as a, a long-distance lorry driver for Heron Frozen Foods. Uh, my mum was a, a dinner lady at the local primary school I attended. Uh I've got an older brother and sister, Lisa and Dino, I'm still close with. So it was a tight-knit family, you know what I mean? We, we didn't have a lot of money, but it was tight-knit and we shared a lot of happy childhood memories. So it wasn't really something I was running out of uh, during the process of adolescence and really before that. I always felt different. I felt a bit strange because I used to look like the milky bar kid. My glasses weighed more than <laughs> me and I was four. Uh, so I always felt separated from people. It sounds a bit strange as a, a 40-year-old grown man with a job and a home and, and, a, and a life today but it started that early back and I didn't realise until I did some work on myself in my 30s when I lived a different way of life how much my childhood and how I felt different from others really and I hit behind it with football really I excelled really quickly at football from a very early age so at the, the local youth club I attended which is the Kingston Youth Centre on Beverly Road in Hull I spent a lot of my childhood there with people a bit older than me uh, so it was almost like a mini apprenticeship into life really a lot of good memories from there play schemes up during the summer holidays and, and Wednesdays, Fridays and Monday nights at a 10 there, which was walking distance from home. So I felt really part of part of society and part of people when I played football, but always a bit of an introvert really and never had any confidence, which played out later on in my life really and used different substances and, and alcohol primarily to change the way I felt to in, able to engage with life. And I thought it was engaging my life, but it was far from it. I was full flight of reality and uh, it would have detrimental effect on my life from from the early days, which we'll probably get into later on in the conversation. But yeah, from from childhood, I always felt a bit awkward, a bit 
a bit different, really, and couldn't really put my finger on it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you, you know, knowing you and, and getting to know you myself, um, you know, I know I know football's played, like, a, a pretty big part in your life, and obviously you just touched on it there with, with regards to, you say, you know, you kind of excelled at that at an early age. So, with regards to football, what, you know, what part did that play at the beginning and where did that kind of lead on? Well, it's funny enough, I started as a under nines, really, and I went around a couple of football clubs, I think, at that age, and I settled at Springhead at under nines. I remember going up to Springhead Lane on a... Mighty you know, Springhead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really good memories of that place, Nick. Uh, and it's strange how, how the football works in your life. I'll, I'll get into my son later on, and he's just finished playing under 18s. He's gone into the open age, but for five, the last four years, I've been going down to Springhead Lane to support my son playing there, and... For the, for the Cottingham Rangers and uh, my journey started on that field 30 years previous so it's strange how football affects you going forward into supporting your son into it but yeah I was a nine-year-old boy and I had a really good father my dad was a fantastic fantastic man but he became our football coach but he was really good away from there he was never putting anything on me but he was really supportive and the amount of times we're going to the garages and every time I kicked the ball with my right foot I had to kick it with my left so I became very good both feet technically. My dad was a, played a huge role in that away from training sessions. And I played for the Springhead from under nines and under tens, which is really good memories. Uh, I met friends from there, a, a kid called Gary Bradshaw. I'm still friends with now, Gary. And we went through, through a lot of uh, some really good times. And he won't mind me saying this, Gary. He's one of the best footballers I've played with, but he underachieved and he, he could have gone to a lot more. But that's for Gary to go into, not me. Great fella. And I still, I still speak with Gary now. Uh, but yeah, we, we we started playing from under nines and under tens there. And under 11s, we broke out and we started our own team and we affiliated ourselves with Hazel Rangers. What was called Hazel Rangers Juniors. Uh, but we had a good team. You know, we had a, we had some good competitive teams in that age. But Byron Boys had a really good team as well and often really competitive games with them. So the football developed organically, really, Nick. And I got a lot from that. You know, I, was, I had a ball at my feet from as awakening and really until the... The lights that came on in the night when that was time to go home and get myself up to bed ready for another day with the football and schooling as it was. I mean, I, you know, I, I know from, you know, being a lad and being massive into football, that was all I really did. Like growing up was just on the football field with my mates or, I mean, me playing for Westall growing up. And I know kind of pivotal apart sometimes being part of a, of a group and part of a team can be. Um, especially, you know, you, I mean, you touched on the fact that back then you you were slightly lower on confidence as well, like growing up. Did you feel like like joining the football maybe gave you a little bit more of identity or improved your um, confidence as well? I think so as well. It was strange that 90 minutes on a football pitch or 60 as it was back then or the hour and a half you train under the floodlights or in the gym, it was a different person. I changed into this person who could who could regulate his feelings and emotions, who could be really natural at what he was doing. So it wasn't really an effort, all that stuff, you know, physically. I maybe weren't as strong as the other lads, but technically and ability-wise, I was always okay, you know, and that's not me blowing me on Trump. I'm not one of them kids, but I, I never felt inferior of anybody what I played against. And I had that I had that process in between me as well. I could, I could be dynamic on a football pitch and, and bring the best out of myself and hopefully... Uh, pushed that on to other people to play well. So, yeah, I got a lot from that. The football was an escape, Nick, it always was. I escaped away from life and feelings and emotions, really. And uh, I got a lot from the football. It took me on a journey, to say the least. And uh, I'm back playing as an old man at 40 now, which is uh, not a pretty sight. But I'm like a dog when it sees a ball, it runs after it or hobbles after it, as I do now. You, 
the thing is, you, you don't seem to lose that though, do you? Do you know, like I think once you've once you've had that passion for for football, especially our fan, like you can't help but get joining in with someone. So it's a oh, do you want to join in? It doesn't take you much to be convinced, even if you you know you're feeling like I mean, like yourself, bad back and everything like that. You know, you still think maybe oh, I could, I could, I could maybe do it. I could maybe do it. It's just a days after now. It takes a lot longer to uh, to get over it, doesn't it? I think it's the weeks now, Nick. <laughs> I think it's the weeks for me now. Yeah, I live in a bit of denial around it, but yeah, it's always been a pivotal part of my life. And as I say, growing up through, through being 11 and 12, it really kicked off, really playing at the centre of excellence at Hull. And Hull were really struggling at the time. There was not a lot of money about in terms of facilities and stuff. But that's all we knew. We had the gym, the back of the old south stand. It was sawdust and, and sweat, but it was a great, great place to play. And on the back pitch where... A lot of the first team played in the centre of excellence and stuff. So we kind of moved to the uni a bit from 12s and 13s and playing for Humberside. And, and the same kept people who were still interested in Nathan Pete, Anthony Bowser, Gary Bradshaw, I'm still my best, best man at Nathan's wedding as well, not so long ago. So these people are still in my life as well. So we went through a journey together through football and still 12s and 13s playing at Hull. Uh, we were still allowed to play Sunday League at the time as well. So we play for Hull, Hull City and our Sunday League teams and play against each other one week and kick each other the next. It was great. <laughs> so where did you get, obviously, you know, you've come through your teens. Where did that lead to your football then? Where, where, what kind of level did you manage to attain to? It was a strange story how I... I was playing for Hull City at the time. It was strange how I, how I got spotted and, and signed for a Premier League football club. I was playing for my Sunday league team under 13, was called Northern Rangers, and was playing against Hesel Sporting Club on the on a on a primary school football field on a cold Sunday morning. And I think we won 2-0, and I didn't really think anything after the game, to be fair. I went back to my friends who played for Hesel Sporting, a kid called Sean Grantham, who plays in my, my veterans football team now. And my dad called me up about four o'clock when I was at Sean's house. You know, the old landlines, we didn't have mobiles back then in 1996, I think it was. And they said, we've had a phone call from a scout from Newcastle United. And my dad put the phone down on him. So it was someone winding him up. So the, the, the scout actually phoned my dad back and, and had a conversation with my dad. And uh, my dad phoned me up at my friend's house and uh, it didn't kind of really sink in, really. Uh, there was a bit of a not good enough feeling and all that. And I, I knew I'd progressed quite well, but to be picked up on a, on a Sunday league football pitch and, and not for my, playing for my football club, which was Hull City at the time, was a bit of a shock, really. So you never know who's watching at a football pitch. I would say that to people. You never know who's on that sideline watching. So always put your best in and, and be the best version of yourself because you don't know who's watching and, and where it can take you. And it was always about enjoying it at that particular time. Do you know what I mean? I was with my friends and stuff, but I knew... I knew a move like that would, would open doors and, and I felt ready for it, Nick, to be fair. I, I really felt ready for it. And at the same time, Gary as well, Gary Bradshaw, got the same the same phone call at 13 and 14. And after a bit of a conversation, I think, with, between the two football clubs, I, I was I went up for a trial up to up to Newcastle, which would have been, I'd have just sent 14 at the time. Uh, so it was a bit of an eye-opener going from where I was up into a, a Premier League football club facilities and expectations were different. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, what was that like? Obviously, I mean, you, you talk about. I mean, I've got. I remember. I remember cities. You know that gym at the back of city. You know, going down there and being ball boy a few times, and we used to back of the south stand, going there, have a kick about for the first like hour, getting down there before the game started. You know, and and like you say, the lack of real facility wise. I mean, what was it like from going from this sort of facilities and then going to you know a Premier League football club you know 
And what was that kind of journey like from from uh, from kind of local to national, and then looking at the um, you know the way that the coaches were and everything? I mean, what was it? What was the differences between the two? There was a big difference, really. The first bit was the expenses we got we got given as well, and there wasn't loads of money, but. Me and Gary, and they'll be the first to admit it, on the train up, we used to get £50 for our expenses and we'd add in the toilet. So we'd, we'd keep our, work out our little £50 expenses and come out of the toilet when the train conductor had gone by. You know, And, and uh, we used to pocket that and use that for our little bit of pocket money when we was out and about. But once we got up there, it was completely different. Uh, the facilities, the, the the way they looked after you, the expenses, the money that they had, and the general way football clubs were run at that particular time was a big eye-opener to... To myself as well, I can't speak for Gaz, but a big eye opener for myself in a positive way. Though you, I felt comfortable around these people, and I was playing at a higher level, and I was I was comfortable and ready to go on that journey. So I went up to Scotland for a week. We played a couple of games. I think we played Hearts and Ibernian for two friendly games. Um, we played against Partick Thistle as well, which was a, a low league club at the time, uh, and it must have gone really well because coming back, I was offered uh, schoolboy forms to play under 15s and 16s. So that was really good. I'd do my schooling in, in Hull at the William G School, an old boys school in the city that's now derelict. It's been knocked down in its homes now. Uh, and on a Friday, I'd be up, up, up to the North East to do my, do my football and, and things like that. So it was, it was really positive. I was 14, coming up to 15 at the time. So it started to, to kick on a really bit now. And yeah, it was there. Uh, I put a lot of work in though. Do you know what I mean? I put a lot of work in to get to this point and it was, it was starting to come into fruition. So... What age did you play for you know for Newcastle? How, how long did you play play there for? I, I, I played from under 15s and 16, so I played like under year 10 and year 11 at school. Wow. Uh, and then at the end of my end of uh, under 16s, we had a we had a meeting with a football club and I was offered a new contract to go up there full time straight from school. So I did my exams, uh, did my exams there and on offer was up, up to the northeast to Starting another way of life, really. So it happened really quick at this particular time, though. And uh, we speak about mental health and how it affects you. Uh, one one instance always sticks out. I had I'd gone to Spain with uh, a family member uh, and a family friend, and we'd gone for a week up there. And I was given a a bottle of uh, Smirnoff drink, you know, just a, a drink which was alcoholic, uh, and it was the first time I'd. I'd been introduced to alcohol. I didn't think anything about it at the time. And I remember having a mouthful of it and it gave me a, a feeling I'd never experienced before in my life. This feeling of being part of, this feeling I can engage with people, speak to people, uh, be part of society, be part of life. And it was the first instance I'd had where this is good stuff, this. Do you know what I mean? And it kind of got me on a bit of a journey. I didn't touch it again for a period of time because it didn't take over my life at this time. You know, the football was was in place, but it was the first introduction I'd had to it. And... Uh, it took me on a, a bit of a journey, to say the least. So I had that starting off as well. And I'd gone up to the northeast in the summer of 1999 full-time to do pre-season training, which was part of the process of getting ready for, for the season to start. So this is when things started turning a bit a bit darker, shall we say. So you you talk, you, you know, you've just touched on it there, like, you know, things started taking a bit of a darker turn. Um have a little bit of talk about that. I mean, what what sort of things started um, going wrong for you or what sort of, sort of things did you start experiencing? I think the experience of the, the bright lights of a new city uh, was a big one. Uh, 
the expectations daily, I think, on me to, to perform at a certain level was was there. Is it very different from schoolboy times when you when you're playing up at the weekend? This was this was day to day. I was living in a complex with other footballers from from different parts of the country who'd been signed at that particular time. So I got on with everybody, everybody was fine, but I started frequenting alcohol a little bit more. I'd be going out after training on a Wednesday. Uh, and certainly after games, there were weekends I'd come back to my own city and, and frequent the pubs and nightclubs in Hull, and I wasn't even the legal age to drink. So this process had started and I didn't really have any control over it. And it sounds a bit strange to say that as a 16-year-old lad who was in a position to, to change his world, but in the back story, in the back journey was this, and it was creeping up on me, Nick, and I didn't know what it was today. I know exactly what it was. Uh, and I wasn't armed with the mental capacity to actually deal with my emotions and feelings. And I used this sporadically and it became, as the journey went on past this, a huge, huge part of my life that took over mentally, physically and emotionally. So I was bamboozled by it originally. And uh, a bit later on, I have some understanding around it. But as a, a 16, 17-year-old lad starting this process off, it was it was quite frightening, really, and, and not really knowing who to talk to. I mean, if you're going back 20, 20 years in changing rooms and stuff, and you want really a position where you'd sit down and speak to somebody, it was kind of get on with it, look at this opportunity that you've got. And I was well aware of the opportunity. It didn't phase me in any way, shape or form. But what phased me was the, the time I'd finished training, time spent by myself. And I got... A, I claimed I was homesick. I wasn't particularly. I just started this process of going and drinking so much and engaging with the wrong people. So you've obviously, you feel like you, you now, you now introduced a drink, the kind of bright lights, and now it's starting to to kind of take over a little bit. And and I mean, I mean, you you know, like you've said there, you know. It sounds daft saying it as a 16-year-old, you could change it. But like you say, unless you've got someone there to say, look, I don't think this is the right way to go, or if you've got someone to confide in or someone to talk to. I mean, was there any support, like, systems in place, like, with regards to, like, City or Newcastle, with regards to anything regarding mental health? I know you're going back quite a long time. You know, was there anything like counsellors that, that you could talk to? There was people within the club as... as... There's people you could speak with, and, and uh, there's another there's another person who was a year older than me, Nick, a lad called Anthony Parry, uh, who was one year older than me. And Anthony was a fantastic footballer, and he was struggling himself. Uh, and he actually uh, got caught taking heroin for the second time. He was caught on a drugs test, was Anthony. He'd gone away for the first time into treatment. He'd come back, and the PFA had come in and done a testing, series of testing pre-season. He got caught again and, and was was released from the football club and Anthony was a highly very good midfield footballer as well. So this was the first introduction of, of people really struggling around us and it wasn't kind of hushed, it made the national newspapers that. Uh, but in terms of help, there was a sports psychologist I spoke with, a guy called Mark Nest, who was fantastic. But it was very difficult, Nick, at 17 or 18 to explain what I was feeling and what was going on. I didn't know this was addiction. I was in the middle of full flight of alcoholism. I didn't know what it was at that particular time. I knew I'd drunk too much and I knew it was taking over my life. But I didn't know what this was. And uh, without a solution, I was always going to be in the problem. So regardless of consequences, it was a difficult period. And uh, I was only up there a year before I... There was a phone call from my manager at the time, Alan Irvin, who was a fantastic coach, Alan, Scottish uh, coach, who went on to coach with Everton and West Ham and West Brom. Fantastic manager and man, really fantastic person. Uh, a lot of time for him. 
and uh, I had, they had a conversation and I came back to Hull. Uh, I think I was just turned 18 or 19 at the time. I came back to Hull. So I was back where I started within three and a half years. I've been at a Premier League football club. Uh, for my own uh, choices, you know, I'd, I'd take full responsibility for my life and decisions I made. I just wanted in a position where I could make rational decisions due to the process that I'd started with, with alcohol, really. So when when would you say things uh, probably got worse for you upon returning back to Hull? I think there was a, about three weeks before this actually happened. I knew I was in serious trouble with it, Nick. We'd played Leeds United and uh, I'd throw a patch at the training ground. And every time we played close to Hull, I'd come home for the weekends to meet up with friends and behave as, as a young footballer shouldn't be, really. And... Uh, I'd come, out, I'd come home on a, a Saturday night. I think I forget the score against Leeds, it's irrelevant. But I came back on a Saturday night to have a night out. And I blinked and it was Monday morning at seven o'clock. And I woke up in this flat on my estate by myself at seven o'clock in the morning. And I had to be back in Newcastle for 10 to start training, uh, which was a, quite a frightening experience, really. Uh, I remember going to my, my, my cousin's little little uh, cafe that she went in two minutes away and borrowing the money off her to get back to the northeast. And you can imagine the sheer desperation and fear of, of boarding the train at Hull, changing at York, getting up to Durham to, to start training and getting in the shower before training an hour late to try and get the smell of alcohol out of me. Do you know what I mean? It took me it took me hostage very early on in my life and that became normality and there was nothing normal about the way I was living. Do you know what I mean? And people on the outside they think, what is this kid doing to himself? He's, he's committing suicide in terms of his mental health his career and it was just I wasn't meaning to do that. It was just it was just the position I was in and, and the lifestyle I was living and I was just I was not in control. And it's quite frightening to say that as an 18 year old man. So coming back to Hull was I I came back to Hull in the summer of I think it was February of 2000 and I played in the reserves and, and the youth team for two years under under Billy Russell who was great as well. And Brian Little was the manager at the time, fantastic guy as well. And Jan Mulder came in I think in the February of the 2002 uh, and I got released in the summer uh, and it was always going to get released Nick, at one of the position where I was uh, I was playing okay and I was playing in the reserves frequently and, and, and making a good account of myself but you couldn't have a person who was in that condition or, or was behaving as he was and, and drinking as he was to be thinking he was going to push on and, and, and start playing league games and expect to be a young a young footballer in in the midst of a career that's going to keep developing, I was I was in the middle of an addiction and, and I have no control of, of how and when I was going to drink, but I knew I was going to. So when you was so when you was released from Hull, yeah. um what path did you take then? Well, it, it was the summer of 2002, and I remember my contract being terminated, and as a as a as a young aspiring footballer, you book two weeks on all with mates to Falaraki, don't you to get over it? As you do, uh, drinking around the clock and be trying to pretend that you're enjoying yourself, but inside you're dying because all the stuff that you've worked from from being eight and nine and put a real lot of time and effort up into the, the point of being released from a of a football club that year, you're on the scrap heap, Nick. I was on the scrap heap and uh, I didn't know where I was going to go from there. Uh, I didn't know where I was going to go coming off that plane back into England, into my own feelings and emotions and not really in a position where I wanted to talk about it. I was I was in this position where I felt a, a bit of a an hostage in in a situation where I didn't really have any control over. So it's it's quite a frightening, not frightening today. It's, it don't frighten me at all. But looking back, as that if you could give that young nineteen year old lad some advice, do you know what I mean? It's going to seek help and seek it quick because it's only going to get worse. 
So, so when would you say that you'd reached your your rock bottom, if you like? Really good question, Nick. That came about, and it sounds frightening to say, it came about 16 years later. Do you know what I mean? And I won't bore you the war stories of, of addiction of 16 years. You only can imagine where it takes you in terms of mentally, physically, and emotionally. And it took me into, it, it took me into institutions and prisons, detoxification units and hospital admissions. And it's not about the war stories. I'll get onto the proper stuff soon. But the backstory of it was for 15 years, I was in the wilderness. You know, I'd brought a beautiful child into the world who I couldn't be a dad to. I'd been missing for, for weeks on end on these drinking sessions and other substances that I don't really want to go into because of the time and the place for. Uh, but yeah, I was really lost in the world and I, I was in my mid-30s and it's a strange occurrence. Like some people have asked me that before, what made you stop? And it wasn't a conversation with anybody. It wasn't a reflection on the past. It wasn't any animosity to anybody. The thing that made me stop was the pain. It was the internal pain of how I was feeling and I knew the pain had taken me to recovery, but it wouldn't keep me there. I knew I needed more than more than just being in pain. And it was a fantastic level that leveled me off. And uh, it put me in a position where I could reach out for help and finally get on the the get on the journey into another way of life, which I live today. So that came 16 years on, Nick, which is, is quite frightening that. By the grace of God, I, I, I was kept alive uh, by powers above, shall we say. And I, I'm here to, to share a journey of change and hope, really. But yeah, it was, uh, and it was a strange occurrence, Nick. I was sat by myself and I'd come round after another episode, she was saying, I had money left, I had alcohol in front of me, but inside of me, there was nothing left. And I, and I reached out to somebody who I, I knew. Um, within a day, I'd, I'd gone into a, a detoxification unit because at that particular point, I was, I was physically addicted to what I was taking. I couldn't stop on my own power. You know, the physical side of the illness had taken over. And uh, I wasn't doing it for enjoyment. I wasn't doing it to fit in. I was doing it to survive and exist. And uh, I can only spread a message of that's no way to live. I was living like an animal and I was behaving like one. I mean, it, it, it's always, I think it's always interesting when, when you talk about addiction, because I think some people can't, I don't know, some people can't fathom what it's like to be addicted to something, you know, whether or not, they realise that they might have a, an addiction which might be moderate. But, I mean, like you, I think what you just said then with regards to, would you say that's what addiction feels like? Is like you live like a bit of an animal? Yeah, I mean, it took over every part of my, my thought process. You know, my, my my physical and emotional well-being was, was long gone. The self-respect, the dignity, the morals I was being brought up by, beautiful mum and dad and an older brother and sister, they were long gone. You know, I mean, I was, I would, I would have sold a family member to get what I needed, and that's me being honest. It took me to some horrific places, mentally and emotionally. And the physical side of it was the issue, but the mental side of things where it took me. And the scary thing again, and we, I speak about pain. It has no memory pain. Give it, give it a week. I could forget how bad it was. You know, a, a rock bottom. I could create another one very quickly. I'm left to me on devices. So these instances of, of. And I had glimmers of hope in it. You know, I mean, I was put into institutions where there was fellowship meetings, but I didn't go to them. Good people were put in my path. I didn't listen to them. So I, uh, I'm just very grateful that I was kept alive long enough to able to to able to get into another way of life and share a message of change. And it and it don't come easy. And everybody's got a backstory in terms of mental health and, and obviously what we speak about stays confidential. But everybody who we speak to has been on a journey. You know, and it doesn't always have to be something that's detrimental for them in terms of 
of where they go with it. Do you know what I mean? It's it for me. It was just it inf infiltrated every part of me, every part of my soul, every part of my every part of me was distorted, and uh, it takes a bit of time to come out of that, and, and it, it takes a period of time to for your mind to settle down, to the feelings and emotions to settle. You know what I mean? There's a lot of work gone into the, the change. I just didn't stop. There was there was a lot of amends to make. There was a lot of work to trust to be built. And uh, I'm on that journey still. And that'll take a long period of time. I, I'm there for the long haul, though. You know, these there's people in my life today who were severely affected by my behaviour. You know what I mean? And I take full responsibility for every action I did, every behaviour I did or didn't do. Uh, I couldn't be a father. I couldn't be Glenn. I couldn't be a son. I couldn't be supportive. And... Uh, and I think coming out of that period of time of darkness, do you know what I mean? If you can't spread a bit of light and, and a bit of brightness in someone's world, then I think uh, it's time wasted. And I won't waste another day on the planet, Nick. We've got a lot of time ahead for us to live, haven't we? And, and for me to be the best version of myself on a daily basis, that was that was a chapter that won the book. And there's plenty more chapters to be wrote. So, <clears throat> so now, now we've kind of, we've, we've, we've gone through a little bit of the backstory and we've kind of come to, if you like, that rock bomb moment. So now I want to talk a little bit about that that recovery and also kind of to talk to talk about the amazing work that you do um as part of working for Elf as well. So what was what was that recovery like um to go through, you know, and, and you know what what things did you have to face along the way? It was it was really quite a daunting experience. I remember coming out with the unit, uh in November of 2019, and I'd had made connections with Working Health previous, because Working Health, Working Health were based at the Enterprise Centre at the university, and about six months before my final debacle, she was there, I'd touched base with Ricky, and I'd known Ricky from previous, because I attended school with Ricky back in William G from like 1994 to 1999, and obviously we had, we had friends who were in the same year, we had different friendship groups, but we was all friends together really, off different estates, but we all got on really well. And Ricky went off, obviously into a different path than me, thank God, and, and went into helping people into the NHS and built a life and a beautiful family that he's got today and organisations that he runs and, and the help that he gives people within our city and our community. So I was well aware of working health. I just wasn't ready to change the way I was behaving. So I remember leaving the unit in the in the November of 2019 and making contact with Ricky. And there was no thoughts of a job, Nick. I wasn't unemployable. It was nothing about jobs or looking at training opportunities is about connecting with people again and and speaking with people and engaging with people and starting building that self-respect back that bit of love for yourself that I'd lost many, many years ago. So I remember coming down to the office that I'm sat in today and uh, the kettle was put on and we sat down and started having a cup of tea and Ricky just asked how I was. I think he could tell really. I think he was being very polite, which he always is. And I appreciated that. And he appreciated the trust and, and the time that himself and Diane started to put into me. So... I remember about after the Christmas time we, we'd spoke and the Christmas, it was my first sober Christmas in about 24 years, I think, which was which was beautiful. Do you know what I mean? I was, my emotions were coming back. I was around my family again, around my son and stuff. So that was that was a beautiful experience that I'd, I'd not had for two decades. Uh, and then we arranged to start coming into into the into the centre where I'm sat today. We started looking at uh, not really engagement with employment. It was looking at the the tea and talk stuff that we do that you're aware of about people coming and have a cup of tea and stuff and generally meeting people uh, and it was really good I started building a bit of momentum then lo and behold we had a lockdown which I think here we go which I won't get into we'll be here all day with that uh, 
So it kind of, it didn't really stop anything though. It did, I thought it was going to, but it didn't because working fell for pretty quick and engaging with Zoom links and was was up and running within within a week. So I was, as a, I was a client at working fell, but I'd got like a, a Zoom link sent to me. And then on a Wednesday and on a Friday, I started doing the care certificate around the social care and, and, the, and the dropping sessions that were put online. So what I'm getting at is I started building a bit of momentum. I started building friendships and a bit of trust. Three things that I'd never had for many years. So I mean that must have I mean I mean how did that make you feel as well I suppose what what did that do to your confidence and your I suppose your self worth feeling that you know you were able to pick up these skills and build this momentum and start having these friendship links starting to come back Yeah it was it was a nice feeling Nick it was a really nice feeling because as I say the past it was very isolated and and to, it wasn't this part of it wasn't I started building connections and and friendships with people and and seeing people all become white colleagues today who were on that journey with me. So it was good. The lockdown was, it was what it was, but I kept engaged and I can only speak for myself. I really knuckled down in that. I'd been isolated for years, so lockdown didn't really phase me in terms of that. I could start putting myself together. I started looking after myself, eating correctly, getting adequate sleep, engaging with people, starting my fellowship meetings that I'd started off. And it was around about the time I'd got uh, a little bit of a time under my belt where I hadn't drank or taken anything and, there was an opportunity to become a volunteer, uh, which I looked at the the paperwork for it. I thought, I'll give that a miss because I, won't, I won't, there's no chance of doing that. And I remember having a conversation with with staff members in there and they said, why don't you apply for it, Glenn? Because uh, these people really believed in me, Nick, and I didn't believe in myself. You know, we're going back to that sh- shy, retiring five-year-old with his glasses on again, you know, with blonde hair like Warren Barton and confidence shut through the roof. So it was a difficult one, but... I applied for it and I was I was lucky enough to get it. Uh, so my 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 volunteering role at Working Felt, I was very lucky because we we've got a, an allotment here down at Taffish Dock Street that we we take clients down there. So I was very lucky during the lockdown period. I could engage with four or five other clients down there. We'd, we'd have a cup of tea. And if if you remember back to that period of time, the sun was out quite a lot, so I was in the sun. We'd do laps of the allotment, engage in conversations. So momentum was growing relationships were growing, friendships were growing and, and, and my spiritual progress was growing as well, which was a big part of it, feeling better about myself. No longer did I want to change the way I felt. I was engaging with with opportunities within working for health and within the community. So it started building a bit of momentum, which I started believing in myself a bit and started a process off of really feeling better in myself. So that obviously then led to becoming a work and recovery coach as well. Um, so just a little, you know, tell us a little bit about what you feel like, you know, you've been able to give individuals who you're working with or who you have worked with along the way. Um, and do you think that your, if you like, what you've gone through personally is giving you a, a better understanding and a better way of connecting with these individuals as well? I think so, Nick. I think it really helps the... The clients coming through that I started as a client here and, and I'm trying to I engage with people who were in a not so di- different position than I was in not so long ago just to <clears throat> just to help them along the journey really and support them and guide them through some difficult times and and just have that empathy and care around people because uh, we don't know who's knocking on that door on a Monday morning or, or late on a Friday afternoon or one that requires our help and assistance so I always share about if I can play a very small part in an individual changing the, the way of life you know physically and mostly and it's a job well done for me. You know, it's not about the, 
the huge car on the on the drive and the, the big home. Do you know what I mean? It's it's about me feeling better and trying to spread a message of of, of care and, and compassion, really. And we work with a lot of different people. As you know, Nikki, we work with people from people who may be struggling even to turn a computer onto anxiety or people who just maybe need a CV update and, and, and they're off, off getting the job of the dreams. So working with a wide range of people. I work with people who have been away for, from communities for a long period of time, in you know, hospital settings, long-term prison systems. So I engage with these people and look at community living and well-being, training opportunities. And, and to see these people not so long ago were institutionalised numbers behind doors to living in the, our community, what we're living today, free of medication, free of their own thoughts and engaging and coming back in here and volunteering and spreading messages of, of change. And it's, it, I feel very privileged to be a part of all that. And uh, the journey continues, doesn't it, within, within the, the building and outside of it, of where we can take this and where all we can reach in the community to try and have a bit of a positive effect on the world. So what would you say is, is probably the biggest value that you feel that you've been able to develop most through being a, a work and recovery coach? I think for me internally, Nick, I'm a different person. I can I can live differently. I can become I'm I'm, I'm a father. You know, I can I'm Glenn, I'm, I can be a friend, I'm I'm trustworthy. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm part of society again. I'm giving back to society instead of taking from it. And as I say, the nine to five role here is great. And we'll get into the community outside of there and try and supporting people and engaging with people. So allow me to live away from all the chaos that I, I touched on earlier on and, and to be part of part of the world again. It's a beautiful feeling, Nick, and it's very early days, but it's it's a process that I'm I'm really enjoying and long may it continue. I mean, I think that's interesting, you know. You talk about obviously being going through that process of, you know, if you like addiction and things like that for a long period of time. And now you kind of feel yourself that, you know, you're obviously a work coach, you're giving experience and advice to other people by sharing your story. But I think what's also, you know, great to hear as well is that you're still saying as well, look, right, I'm still on that journey. And I probably will be for a long time, but I'm in it for the long haul. Yeah, I'm under no illusions, Nick. If I took one drop of alcohol, I'll be back where I started. You know, I put a lot of time and effort into into my world away from human beings. You know, a connection that I have and the way I live my life accordingly through through the way I I, I live my life. Uh, everyone has their own journey, you know, and I know what keeps me safe. I know what keeps me well. I know what I need to do on a daily basis to, to keep that. I don't call it maintenance because I don't want to stay still. It's about progression. Uh, we keep progressing spiritually and emotionally and being part of part of society, part of life. So but it's a big part of my world that nobody really sees. You know, even close ones don't see it. They get the effects of me doing that, but that's a, a part of the process I keep very personal to me and, and, and it allows me to live a different way of life to so away from all the, the main and chaos of, of the past. So... I'm a, it's it's a little way away from me all that stuff now, and as I said, I, I touch on it, and it's part of me, but it's not me. It's about the change. It's about how do we get to this point? We know the problem. What's the solution? And the solution is different for many different people. The solution for somebody may be a job, maybe to become a better person. But the job and the the other stuff comes later for me. It's how do we be a better version of ourselves? How do we, our well being grow? Is it full connections with other people? Is it going for outside help that? us, myself, are certainly not trained to give. You know, we, we look at outside organisations who are, who are trained in that stuff who we can refer on to and speak with. 
you know, I don't want to start playing God in people's life. I'm certainly not God. There's other people who are trained in this stuff who can help. So it's a, it's a, it's a wraparound help and support, I think. And I think it's important that and having the right people around us who can, who can require that help and give that help out if needed. So just, I mean, last thing before we kind of finish off, I just wanted to kind of touch on, because we, we talked about it a little bit earlier and, and you've, you've mentioned it a few times. Um, what, I suppose, what role has if being able to be a dad played within, you know, your recovery as well? It's been a huge one, Nick. I couldn't spell the word, let alone be one. You know, at the time I was, I was a young man who was, who was a father, but didn't know how to be one. You know, and there was my son had fourteen years on the planet with an absent dad running around the city like no man's business. So. The connection was always there. My son just wanted me to be around and we have the most beautiful, tight relationship you've ever met, apart from his choice in football teams, but I can't do much about that. Uh, we had a, he changed his football team. I, he was a toffee, but he didn't have much choice about being an Evertonian. I, I just met him an Evertonian. But we yeah, did a, yeah. We did a stadium tour at Man United and he didn't get off the, we didn't get back to Hull and he changed his, his colours, so... I couldn't do much about that. But yeah, the process of being a dad for four years is, is the most beautiful process I've ever had in my life to be how close we are, how I'm a full-time dad to him now. He lives with me, you know, and, and that connection with, with my son is unbreakable through, through the work I did, Nick, and, the, and thank God he didn't give up on me. You know, he could have given up a long time ago. He didn't. He just wanted his dad well. He just wanted to be part of his life. And yeah, some of the stuff, the, even the conversations me and him have in our, in our car going to football matches or in you know, day-to-day stuff of being a dad, you know, it's it's beautiful, Nick. You can't really put it into words, can you? Do you know what I mean? You'll know, being a father yourself, that, that bond you have is unbreakable, isn't it? And it's uh, it's a journey that we'll see through. He's, he's 18 going on 38, do you know what I mean? With all the... Yeah, we won't go into that year all day. But yeah, beautiful boy, <laughs> a beautiful young man now. And I'm, I'm a pleasure to call him my son. He's, he's a beautiful human being. That's brilliant. So the last question I always ask any guest who comes on, um, if you were to give one nugget of advice to anybody who might be listening now, what would that one nugget be? Reach out for help would be the biggest one. Don't keep, don't suffer in silence. You know, there's people out there who, who care, no matter what you're going through, how dark it may seem, there's organisations, there's humans out there who care. And uh, reach out for help because uh, I'd rather speak to you to till five o'clock in the morning then attend your funeral. That's brilliant. Honestly, Glenn, it's, you know, from, I can honestly say from the first time, I, you know, I managed to to meet you and, and you know, do a little bit of work. We're working for Elf and still, still kind of uh, like getting in there and doing the research and stuff. I, I knew from the first kind of moment I met you and, and got to know your story, I thought, this will be a something with you know. I'd love to have you on and share your story because I just think it's it, it's it's powerful, but it's also it's a you know if anything it's a it's a story of never giving up and you know just keeping keeping hope for him that recovery and you know it doesn't matter how kind of dark your days are you can still turn it around with hard work and dedication as well. So. Massive, massive, massive thank you for coming on today, Glenn, and sharing your story uh, with everyone. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. <laughs> and I hope, it, you know, I hope, I hope the trains haven't been too noisy on that side for you. 
No, I'm being too bad. It's it's been a pleasure to spend a bit of time with Nick and, and speak about what we're doing here at Working for Health. And as I said, this has been a huge part of my recovery journey. We speak about recovery in other areas, but the uh, the foundation, this organisation, from a client to a peer supporter, volunteering in between, and to be a position where I'm I'm trying to help others. It's been, this place is it's, it's been fantastic, and uh, I'll be here. I'll be with this organisation as long as they want me. I've got so much time for me. It's, it's unbelievable. So, yeah, thank you again for your time and we'll catch up in person hopefully real soon, Nick. No, we will do, definitely. Um, For anybody who wants to um, find the... I'll put all the details for working for health. Anybody who may be interested in finding out a little bit about them or maybe feel like they can maybe get some help from working for health, I'll put it on. But I know from um getting to know the individuals there, it's a very, very special place. Um. So yeah, Glenn, thanks so much for coming on. Um, And for everyone else, I'll see you on the next podcast.